0: Welcome to the Leading Voices with ULI, a podcast of the Urban Land Institute. In this podcast series, we interview city builders who use innovative approaches to create healthier, more economically vibrant communities with character and a high quality of life. These leaders provide inspiration to those of us looking to play a role in building better cities. Today's Leading Voices interview was with Scott Cowan, former president of Tulane University. Scott was president of Tulane during Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath, and is also a long term board member of Forest City Enterprises. Scott spoke to a great number of topics relevant to our themes and leading voices. Here's some of the headlines you'll want to hear more about in the interview. First, Scott lived through the storm in New Orleans. He did not abandon ship. He stayed at Tulane through the hurricane and was there. 36 hours after the storm passed under blue skies when the levees were breached and the city flooded. I've seen the images but have not spoken myself to someone who lived through it. It was in the crucible of the aftermath of the flood where Scott's leadership came to bear. He and the leadership team at Tulane holed up in an office in Houston. They followed two tracks, crisis management to save the school and long-term planning that both transformed the school and indeed the city of New Orleans. It's most interesting that the flood really brought Tulane and the city together. I'd not thought about it before, but he said that prior to the flood, Tulane was located in the city but apart from the city, and after the flood, they have embraced each other, and both are better for it. We've heard in other interviews in the podcast series with Egbert Perry about Atlanta and the University of Georgia about the importance of connectivity and community building between a university and its surrounding city. I'm sure we'll hear it again. Finally, Scott talks about leadership and what prepared him for handling the crisis. As I spoke to him, I was so reminded of Tom Hanks playing the heroic Captain Sully, where in both Sully and Scott's case, a lifetime of experience all came to play in a crisis moment. For Sully, it was landing that plane on the Hudson. For Scott, it was rising to the occasion and using a crisis to transform a city in the beloved city of New Orleans. Lessons abound. Enjoy the podcast. Check out more information on Scott, and also you're welcome to post your comments on the podcast page at ULI.org or on ULI's Facebook page. Why don't we start? I'm curious and maybe set the table for us about New Orleans and about Tulane pre-Katrina, and how long were you there uh, in your post-Cleveland life? And what what was New Orleans like for you? What was Tulane like for you? And what was the relationship between the two? Because maybe that changes post-Katrina, and that that was really your work. Sure. Well, I came to New Orleans
1: in 1998. I had spent the prior 23 years uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, as part of Case Western Reserve University. When I came to New Orleans in 1998, and really up until Katrina in 2005, um, What I recognize, which most of the country, I think, had recognized, is that New Orleans is a truly unique city in the United States, uh, primarily known for, you know, let the good times roll and Mardi Gras and jazz fest and uh, parades. Um, But underneath all of that, it was a city also that had some very significant problems. It had significant problems with blight, had significant problems with its public education system. It had significant problems with crime. It had some ethical lapses uh, over the decades. So on the one hand, it had a lot of unique strengths and characteristics and character,
0: Uh Uh,
1: but on the other, it was a city that was in decline in some of the traditional metrics you would use. And I would also say uh, that I didn't think when I came in 1998 that New Orleans was particularly open to outsiders coming into the city. Uh, that didn't mean that they weren't warm and welcoming. They are always warm and welcoming, but actually getting involved in the fabric of the city itself. So it was very difficult, not necessarily for me, uh, because I was president of Tulane University, which is the largest private employer in Orleans Parish and one of the largest uh landowners. So it was a little bit easier for me. But I noticed with other executives coming into New Orleans prior to Katrina, that they had a hard time getting knitted into or involved in what I would call the civic community of New Orleans. And I think it was just simply that New Orleans was more comfortable with who they were and people who had grown up here or who had been here many years rather than outsiders. Absolutely. Uh, with respect with respect to Tulane, what, what I discovered was that uh, Tulane was uh, one of the obviously most highly regarded institutions in the state. Uh, we brought people to New Orleans who otherwise wouldn't come, in the form of students and faculty and staff. We had a, a, you know, an outstanding reputation around the country, and we were one of the largest economic engines, both in Orleans Parish and in the state. And in many ways, New Orleans had a love-hate relationship with us. They loved us for all the things I just mentioned, but they also saw us as aloof distant and perhaps not caring um, as much about New Orleans as people would have thought it should. And that was my perception of how people felt about Tulane. There was no antagonism between the university and the city, but I don't think there was also a close bond uh, between the university and the city, other than the fact we were you know, a large landowner and a large uh, private employer. I think, quite honestly, all of that changed after Katrina. Um, I could say to you in good conscience that New Orleans and Tulane are stronger and better today than if that storm had never happened. Now, I would have never wished Katrina on New Orleans or any city in the world. But the fact of the matter was there were silver linings that happened because of Hurricane Katrina. So today, both the city and Tulane are better positioned in many ways, have uh, confronted issues that have chronically defined them, and I think have much brighter futures uh, than they had before 2005.
0: Let's get back in a few minutes. I'm I'm curious about both how the the college has changed and how the city has changed, but so let's go back to 2005, you're there, the hurricanes are coming and I think you you didn't uh, abandon ship maybe. Oh, what, that's what, correct. What was it like there?
1: Well, it, it was interesting because the Thursday before the storm, the storm made uh, landfall on a Monday. The Thursday before the storm, when you looked at the weather maps, Katrina wasn't really going to come to New Orleans. It was east of us. And we were sort of breathing a sigh of relief that it would not make landfall in New Orleans. But within 24 hours, it changed dramatically, and it was clear it was coming to New Orleans. Now, for Tulane, that Friday, then, before the storm on Monday, Uh was move-in for all the brand-new students. So all the new students and their parents descended on the campus that Friday before uh, monday and and then on Saturday, we had a convocation where we welcomed all of them and It was an historic convoc- convocation, one where I actually stood in front of three thousand people in Bermuda shorts and a t- shirt gave them a formal welcome to the university, and then told them they had to leave when wow. I said that. I thought we would be back probably in four or five days and not to worry. It turned out it was more like four or five months. It was a very auspicious start to the semester for brand new students (laughs) uh, having come and having then had to evacuate.
0: And help me with this for a second. You're in Bermuda shorts. You're talking to 3000 people. You know, something's coming, but is it kind of nice out? Is it ominous out? Are... Uh, no, it, it's, it, it's first of all,
1: it's sunny out, but very, very hot. So it was in the high 90s, and the humidity was in the high 90s, which is not unusual for New Orleans, you know, no. in, uh, in August. But uh, we were very sure, looking at the weather tracking, that it was going to come within a few days, and they needed to get out of the city. And in fact, that day, that Saturday before the storm, on Monday, we successfully evacuated 800 students from uh, New Orleans to Jackson, Mississippi. The rest of the students left with their parents and either went back home or went to friends or neighbor, uh, friends or relatives uh, in some neighboring state. And then, of course, the storm hit on Sunday, and, uh, and it was horrendous. I mean, just being on campus and witnessing it. But what was interesting, when the storm ended, there was actually no water. I walked out on campus, I remember, and uh, and said, my gosh, we, we dodged a bullet here. There were uh, tree limbs down. There was some roof um, jingles down. There were some windows broken. For the most part, it was not bad, and I thought we would be
0: open within a week. So when, did, when and how did the damage happen?
1: Uh, the damage to the campus of the city uh, transpired about the same time, which was within 36 hours after the storm passed. And what had happened was uh, the levees had been breached as a result of the storm. And once the levees had been breached, that flooded the city and most of Orleans Parish. Matter of fact, 80% of Orleans Parish was flooded for an average of 57 days. But it wasn't until 36 hours later, uh, after the storm went through, came, that the flooding came. And that's why we always refer to Katrina as a man-made disaster, not a natural disaster. Because if the levees had been properly maintained over years, that flooding would have never occurred to the extent that it did.
0: Right. And just one question before we get to that the flood part was... Just what was it like sitting through a hurricane? Was this the worst storm you'd ever experienced? Were you nervous for yourself? Just just a lot of wind? What was it like?
1: Well, it was, it was wind, a lot of wind, and rain that actually I've never seen rain come down horizontally. Uh, <laughs> but the wind and the rain was so much it was horizontal. And uh, we were in a building on one of our campuses, what we call our uptown campus, the building was literally shaking. Um, I, I was never frightened for my safety. Uh, I was in the Riley Center, which is our recreation building on campus, and uh, that's a pretty sturdy building. But uh, it, it was uh, it was frightening. I will say that. But but I wasn't uh, afraid of my own safety.
0: Okay, so you're planning to get people back in five or six days. But then 36 yep. hours later, all of a sudden, you're flooded out, the man-made disaster. Uh, yep. And, and uh, now you're, you're going to have to make a plan. Yeah. Uh, well, it, the answer is yes.
1: But remember, when it flooded, then what happened was we had no power. When I say we, the entire city or area had no power, no water, no sewer, no telephone, including satellites. No means of communication. So for the most part, wherever you were, you were locked into that area because, you know, you couldn't get in a car and drive around. Uh, you might be able to get into a boat and get around, but, but not a car. So your, your world was really confined to the particular building that you were in where, wherever you were. In the building I was in, uh, there was flooding all around the building. So the only way we could uh, move away from the building was was by boat, and it so happened that we had a couple of boats uh, underneath the building I was in, and the physical facility guys who were staying with us in the Raleigh Center got them operable, and I got around campus on uh, on those boats.
0: Well, and, and it's a funny image, and I'm just forgetting this from from you know that time, but. You had the convocation, it's blue skies, although hot as heck, and then when the flood happens, the storm's also over, and I don't know if it's blue skies or not, but both crisis times for you, or both of the planning times, were with blue skies, but a lot of, you know, second time, a whole lot of water. Yeah, that's absolutely correct.
1: So, once again, remember then, when all the power and everything uh, disappeared, it was in the high 90s, humidity and temperature, so
0: you can only imagine... What it was like. So help us think about what you did in crisis and crisis planning. I guess that's the right word. But and and I think that's the crux of our story. We'll talk about what happened. But then, how did you start to assemble the thinking with this level of crisis of of what to do?
1: Well, uh, because I was on campus and we had no means of communication there was no active planning for survival or recovery. My first mode of communications, believe it or not, was when one of my daughters text messaged me. And I had never used text messaging before, (laughs) didn't know what it
0: was,
1: (laughs) but apparently text messaging worked. And uh, I began to communicate with some of my senior people who had evacuated and all of our time was spent on two things. Having everybody get to Houston, Texas, and for us to secure a building in Houston, Texas, with apartments and offices in it that we could lease for an undetermined period of time. And then the second part of the planning was, how do I evacuate from New Orleans and get to Houston? So, One of my senior staff, who was my uh, chief of staff, she went to Houston and she found us literally a residential building that had office space in it as well, where we then had designated a number of people to come to Houston, and that wound up being our sort of headquarters. I evacuated about five days after the storm. Uh, It was sort of an interesting evacuation, but the, the bottom line of it is I held down a helicopter on uh, the the banks of the Mississippi River, and that helicopter took me to Patterson Air Base in Louisiana, and one of our trustees sent a plane for me that then took me to Houston, Texas. So that's how I evacuated uh, uh, about five days after the storm, and I went to Houston.
0: Quick question. When they evacuated you on the, the helicopter, did they send down a rope or did they land so you could jump right in? I'm trying to picture yeah, this one.
1: Yeah, they, they were able to land. Uh, there was some cute parts to that story that I'll tell you. I mean, it's hard to believe. But, but in order to me to get to even the Mississippi River, you know, I, I, I had to, I took a golf cart that was laying around. I found the truck that had the keys in it, but it didn't have gas. So I siphoned gas out of some cars and put it in the truck and then uh, drove the truck. I was with somebody else and we drove it to the Mississippi River to hail down the helicopter. And I remember uh, a week or two later, I was on one of the news channels and someone was telling, asking me, you know, how did I develop the skills to siphon gasoline out of a car and, you know, hail down (laughs) helicopters? And I said, well, I'll remind you of two things. I wasn't born a university president. And secondly, I was born and raised in Jersey, and that gave me a lot of skills that most people don't have.
0: A lot of gas-sucking in Jersey, I guess.
1: Right, exactly, yeah. So I wound up going to Houston, Texas, and obviously I was joined by uh, a growing number of my colleagues who were directed to go there. Uh, Within the first 48 hours of being in Houston, we made three very important decisions, which I think then set the tone for the whole recovery. Uh, first was that we would continue to pay every single faculty member and staff member as long as we could because we knew their lives were disrupted. We knew their house, homes were probably destroyed. They were obviously um, going to be out of work for a while in the sense that the university wouldn't be open. So uh, we, we made this vow that we would continue to pay everybody. The second thing was uh, I got on the phone with the heads of the various higher education authorities and asked them if they would take our students from around the country, you know, our students at Tulane, and let them attend those universities in the fall of 05. But not let them transfer in January right. of 06, because if they transferred, they never come back. And I also asked them not to charge them tuition, that let them pay their tuition to Tulane University instead, and that would help us recover.
0: Stop there for a sec. Uh, People do come together in a crisis, and the academic community came together and accepted those terms?
1: Uh, For the March, uh, yes. For the most part, they did. It was all voluntary, obviously. It was not restricted. But our students, uh, Tulane students, attended 597 different colleges and universities in the fall of 2005. And the vast majority of those colleges and universities did not accept uh, the tuition, or they remitted it to us. And the student paid uh, paid us, and in return for that, what we gave the students was a a free semester when they returned, uh-huh. and and secondly, we allowed them uh, to count all the credit hours they had taken while they were at other colleges and universities. And normally we wouldn't do that, you know, as a blanket policy, and we did do it. Okay. So that allowed them to stay on stay on track.
0: Uh-huh. And the, and the thing third
1: thing, yeah, the third thing we had, this was the one where it took probably the, the greatest chutzpah. Uh we said that we would reopen January 16th of 2006. So we wow. announced that a week after the storm, and we had no idea how we would open. But we realized we needed to give everybody a focal point, a goal to achieve, and give them some hope. And that hope was to, you know, come, come back uh, in January of 06.
0: And then you were able to, and you achieved all three of those. Uh, we did.
1: Uh, so what happened was, um, because we had paid faculty and staff, they were remarkably loyal to us. So when they, we reopened, uh, virtually all of the faculty and staff came back, 87% of our undergraduates came back uh, when the prediction was we'd be lucky to get 50%. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, we, we were able to open on January 16th. But we had to do a lot more to reopen in January than we originally envisioned in the fall of '05.
0: I would think so. And and one of the themes of our podcast series, or maybe two, one is kind of about the, this the power of urban development. And the second is leadership and what it takes and, and how it works. And maybe you found yourself at one of those leadership moments when there was, you were well prepared, but there was no choice, but to do it.
1: Absolutely right. I mean, this was uh, a pure case of survival. I think most people in the fall, especially the early fall of '05, thought Tulane University would never reopen. Or if we did reopen, we would be so damaged by what happened, we would never be the university where we were before. And people also had that feeling about New Orleans. There was a feeling that we would never open up again. And right. uh, so it was a tough time.
0: Understood. So when in the process do you, how much are you holding in your hand on preserving and saving Tulane? And how How and when does that generalize to you can't preserve Tulane without saving and upgrading and, and doing great things for the city? So how did they balance out in your mind at that, in that crucible of crisis? Yeah,
1: um, we actually broke down the task when we got into use of We said we had three phases to what ultimately was going to be the Tulane that opened up in January. The first one was survival. And we defined survival as, can we physically get our campuses ready to reopen in January? And did we have the financial wherewithal to reopen in January? We defined that as survival. Mm -hmm. The second phase uh, was what we call recovery. Could we recover most of what we had before, especially the very important or, or distinctive areas of the university, could we recover those areas? And we called that recovery. And then the third was, is could we reimagine Tulane in a way that we had not conceived before the storm? So we had two parallel processes going on. One group of people working on survival and recovery and a different group working on transformation. And you, it was, you didn't wanna co-mingle those two groups because those working on survival and recovery were working every minute of every day with minutiae and trying to just get things ready for reopening and to be financially viable. The other group had the, not the luxury, because nobody had the luxury, but had the space to think more broadly and expansively about what Tulane could become. How could we reimagine the kind of university we were? And to aid in that part of the process, I called in five people from around the country who were very helpful. As an example, the former president of Princeton University, the former president of the University of Michigan, at the time, the current president of Rice University, the provost at uh, Harvard, the president of Johns Hopkins. And I asked them to be a sounding board and a planning group for me and our trustees to think about how we could reimagine Tulane when it did open. And they're the ones that worked with us to help Craft what I would call for the lack of a better word, our renewal plan, most uh-huh. called it our transformation, and we announced that plan in December of two thousand and six, so by the time we opened in January, you know we physically had our physical facilities, our staff and and enough you know resources, financial resources to keep on going, but we also then began to feel and look like a different institution than we were before. I won't discuss with you all the aspects of the renewal plan. Medium dealt with obviously the academic strategy and the structure of the university. Mm-hmm. I think the one that's most germane to the conversation we're having was was to develop our new strategy on what we now call a place based strategy. That is, rather than sort of saying Tulane happens to be located in New Orleans the new strategy was that Tulane and New Orleans are powerful partners together in the process of not only building each of their own organizations but working together to build a stronger community together rather than separately so it developed we developed what we call place based strategy. And there were several components to that place-based strategy. The first one was we became the first and only major research university that integrated public service into the core curriculum. So every undergraduate that came to Tulane University and even today does public service. Most of them do it in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. That, in any particular year, may be a half a million hours of service going to rebuild New Orleans in one way or another so that was probably the most pivotal transformative step because it all of a sudden began to attract a different student to Tulane that is students who really wanted to be engaged in their community and it began to change our relationship with New Orleans because They all of a sudden saw us as a very powerful partner in helping with issues they had. For example, public education. We were dramatically involved in the resurgence of public education in New Orleans. In fact, I chaired the community-wide effort to re-envision and rebuild the public school system, both academically and physically. And Tulane, to this day, is very involved in the public school system.
0: Question for you, I can see it's easy at the time that people are coming back to the school and new students are being admitted post-Katrina, that that level of civic involvement would be appealing. Everyone kind of then, it was fashionable to want to go volunteer in New Orleans, but that's been persistent in the school and continues to this day, correct?
1: Absolutely. There has been no wane of interest whatsoever whatsoever. And, and the reason is, is that the students who come here, about 80 to 90 percent say one of the primary reasons they come to Tulane is because we do have this service culture. And therefore, they come for it and it delivers because they do their service and they don't have to do it in New Orleans, by the way. They could do it anywhere in the world. But it's become a distinctive advantage or competitive advantage of the university because we have that culture. So we then began to work with the city to help rebuild both academically and physically the public education system, the healthcare system, the neighborhoods. Let me just give you an example of the neighborhoods. In our School of Architecture, one of the ways that they did their service was in design studio, they, after the storm, began to design low-cost, hurricane-resistant homes. And in fact, right. the following semester, the students themselves in the School of Architecture would build the homes. And for about two or three years after Katrina, the students in the School of Architecture were the largest group that was building most, more single-family homes in New Orleans than anybody else. Now, that only That's lasted great. for a couple of years. Uh-huh. Then, what happened over time? They didn't build the homes, but they now work with communities throughout the state to design all kinds of things, everything from homes to schools to urban farms, where our students are partnering with communities throughout the state to help design different ways to live and to work and to sustain yourself in the state.
0: So let's go back to the time that you were in crisis mode and making these decisions, and then the leadership that you had to to do through the rebuild process. Did you feel ready? Do you ever feel ready? And, no, and you, what, what do you draw upon to make that happen?
1: You, you never feel ready for a crisis like that. Matter of fact, I remember very distinctly when I got to Houston, Texas, and I really uh, got an understanding of the breadth of the depth of the problem because remember when I was in New Orleans, I didn't get that because you know I didn't have access to TV and radio. I felt totally overwhelmed, and I felt we were doomed, and I had no idea what to do. But what what you do is you you either it either destroys you or you figure it out. And uh, you know there were there were three experiences in my life that I think prepared me. One is is you know I had undiagnosed dyslexia for many many years. So I had to under, uh, overcome a lot of hardships when I was young, because I had, obviously, a learning problem. It wasn't diagnosed, and it wasn't treated. Uh huh. And you learn, I think, when you have something like that, to try to overcome uh, some hardship. And then I did serve in the U.S. Army Infantry in the 1960s as an officer, and, and that gave me a skill set that, you know, not a lot of university presidents have. And and I also was a student-athlete in college. And when I think back, I think those three things, some combination of them, gave me the resilience and the determination to move forward and not to stop. And then I'd say the last thing is I happen to be Jewish. And, you know, uh, we we always, uh, one of the tenants is tikkun uh, alum, to repair the world. Uh-huh. And it dawned on me that Boy, if I was ever going to help repair the world, it was that moment in time in this place. And you either stood up and you didn't or you walked away from it. So I think it was uh, all of those things combined together that gave me the strength to do it.
0: I'm just curious about dyslexia. So how does overcoming it, especially if you don't know that if you maybe haven't put a finger on that, you have it. It's all about
1: resilience. The ability to overcome what it is and not be defeated by it. So uh, what you find out when you grow up is, boy, I, I I can't stand up and read a speech because I just have a tough time with words. So what you wind up becoming is uh, either you never do it or you wind up becoming very good on your feet. Most people would say I am very good at an extemporaneous speaker. You you learn how. Not to say certain words because you know you can't say them correctly. Uh, you learn to stay away. In my case, from languages because you know you can't. But you know, in my case, uh, numbers and mathematics were were easier. So you you just learn by the adversity of what to do to overcome it. Yeah. And uh, yep. and therefore you apply it in other
0: situations. And how resilient was your team? And how how did you lead them? to also get to that place? And did there either level of fear or how did you inspire them to keep going?
1: Well, uh, with the exception of two people, they turned out to be a very resilient team. And I found out very quickly who could stand up and be counted and who could not. And I did have to replace two people within the first couple of weeks, not because they weren't good people, they were terrific people but they clearly could not cope with the stress and the adversity we were facing. And I didn't have the luxury to coach them, to bring them along, Um, you know, I had to put people in place who could get the job done. So uh, the rest, though, uh, proved to be unbelievably resilient, very creative in terms of uh, problem-solving. And by the way, studies have shown that people who are resilient have three characteristics. They understand reality, that is, what's going around them. Secondly, they're very creative, and they can improvise on the spot. And number three, they have a core set of values that always dictates the decisions they make.
0: Yeah. And,
1: you know, yeah. I, I would say that the people I had uh, who did well fit, fit that definition of resilience.
0: Uh-huh. Well, talk about improvisation and being in New Orleans. I think there's a there's yep. a connection there. So last next to last subject, talk about your work in public education and the importance of strengthening the schools in, in New Orleans. Yeah.
1: Well, before Katrina, we had one of the worst public school systems in America. It was terrible. And I'm a great believer that a community could be no better than the quality of its public school system, that maybe for a while you could get away with it but over time, it's going to destroy your community. So uh, I believe that after the storm, this was an opportunity to really address the public school system. And as I said, I headed up that study group that developed the plan, and that plan seemed to be consistent with other plans that were being developed. And what happened was we wound up decentralizing the public school system, and that is pushing authority and decision-making down to the school level taking dollars away from central administration, and putting them into the schools. Ultimately, we, we wound up using charters as the vehicle and investing in human talent. So in New Orleans today, 93% of children in New Orleans are in charter schools, 93%. Wow. We have significantly improved graduation rates, and the quality of public education by every metric you would use. And prior to the storm, of the 60, I think it was 67 school districts in Louisiana, we were probably number 66, 65. Now we're at the median um, in Louisiana, and and all of Louisiana has gotten better. So we believe that probably the single biggest uh, success story in New Orleans, and there's lots of them, uh, has been to turn around the public school system in its future. And Tulane to this day is very involved. Uh, there is an institute at the university named after me called the Cowan Institute that continues, has been in existence for 10 years, focuses on continuing how to improve public education. But we have a, a cadre of organizations that only focuses on how can we continue to improve education in New Orleans and have one of the best public school systems in america
0: good for you so final question um at the beginning of the conversation you talked about both tulane and new orleans being stronger post katrina than pre-katrina so question a is how far through the rebuilding process are you and then the second thing is talk about both being stronger maybe you've made the case for tulane i'm curious about the case for new orleans
1: well, in the case for New Orleans is this. If you look at the neighborhoods, we, we've significantly decreased blight. We're dealing with crime. We still have crime, but we're dealing with it much more effectively. We have a significantly uh, better public school system. Uh, we have enacted ethics laws now, statewide and in the city, that has cleaned up uh, a lot of the problems we had before. Uh, and. Uh, and we have developed a culture of innovation and entrepreneurship in the city, so that now corporations are opening up subsidiary offices. GE is now in in New Orleans. We would have never imagined a GE being here. There's a startup climate here, for profits and non-profits who are starting up. Venture capitalists are coming here. These are all things that just didn't exist, you know, before Hurricane Katrina at Tulane, Tulane rankings have never been higher, interest by alumni have never been higher, applications have never been higher, research dollars have never been higher. So the university is on a terrific rebound. Uh, the city, you know, we still have a ways to go. Listen, you know, we're not a we're still not a model city. I won't rest and I probably won't see it in my lifetime. Uh where we're a model city. You know, I want our our public school system not just to be a, a good solid public school system, I want it to be one of the best public school systems in America. And we're 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 still a good ten to twenty years away from achieving that particular goal. But we're a hell of a lot better off than we were before the storm.
0: You know, one of the comments you made early on is that Tulane was located in New Orleans. Not part of New Orleans and it's so interesting from outside of Tulane. And I went to Oberlin College and outside of Cleveland. So you probably, you know, that area. Sure, um, I know well. You can't not think of Tulane and New Orleans and the strength and the attraction of that college of that educational institution is to be part of that city that is so interesting and so attractive to people.
1: Yeah. I mean, when, when you, when you think about it, quite honestly, As I told you, students come to us because for lots of factors, but one of the big ones is our commitment to civic engagement. Uh, But, you know, they're also coming because you're in a very vibrant city like New Orleans that's not just, you know, fun, but has this culture now of entrepreneurship and startups and a little bit like, you know, the Old West used to be. Anything is possible now. You can come if you have a dream, if you have an idea, the likelihood that you can get funding for it is pretty high in New Orleans.
0: We hope you enjoyed this installment of the Leading Voices with ULI podcast hosted by the Urban Land Institute. To learn more about ULI's leadership network or to join ULI as a member, please visit ULI.org.